You're listening to Fresh Ideas for Teaching. Hi, everyone. This is Walter. The Fresh Ideas for Teaching podcast is presented by Savvis Learning Company. This is our second episode of our Keep in Science Real podcast series. I'm here with my colleague, Leon Eikhoff Gentry, K8 Science Marketing Manager at Savvis Learning. Leon, who do we have as our special guest today? Today, we have Dr. Shelley Forsyth. Dr. Forsyth has over 20 years of experience as a pre-K through 16 science, math, and as a STEM teacher. Uh, She has published numerous articles on teaching and learning in leading national and international journals, um, including the Science and Children and Science Scope. In, In 2016, Dr. Forsyth joined the faculty of Texas State University as an associate professor of STEM education, and she currently serves as associate chair of the Department of Curriculum and Instruction in the College of Education. Dr. Forsyth, we're so happy you could join us today. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Um, You know, I had the pleasure of sitting in one of your workshops at a recent NSTA conference, and you were discussing strategies by using local phenomena to engage students. And I wanted to dig deeper into this, um, this idea. But first, what I wanted to do is to ask you a couple of things. Um, What inspired you to pursue a career in STEM education, and particularly at the elementary level? Well, um, I have known since junior high that I always wanted to teach. My school was one of those that had those amazing programs where um, if you're in junior high or high school, you got uh, to go down to the elementary and middle school to teach younger students. And I absolutely loved it. Um, Now, in junior high and high school, my academic strengths were definitely math and science. And I ultimately chose science because I was just enthralled um, and uh, about how science is always presenting a mystery or a puzzle to solve. It's always changing and we're learning new things. Um, So um, if I was thinking about what career did I want for the rest of my life, that change in growth was something that I absolutely, absolutely loved. Now, I actually started out as a high school biology, AP calculus, geometry uh, teacher, and a soccer coach. Um, oh but over God. the years, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a crazy start to my, my teaching career. But over the years, I drifted down to the elementary level, um, moving into middle school and, and then uh, to, to elementary. And uh, part of the reason I did that is I was just awed uh, over time by the wonder and curiosity that young children have. And I really consider it something precious, something that we um, in academia really need to protect as teachers. Uh, and in particular, since research shows that by middle school, so many students' views of themselves as scientists is pretty much fixed. Mm-hmm. So the elementary years are just so vital to building student science identities. And as I drifted down to working with elementary students, I also developed a love for working with elementary teachers. I mean, these are the teachers who do it all. Uh, They're teaching every subject as well as um, supporting students and building social skills and learning just uh, what it means to be part of communities. And many of our elementary teachers really didn't have the best science experiences. But they're driven by the duty of care that they have for their students. And so um, I've, I consider it a privilege to really work alongside these elementary teachers now to help them rediscover their own wonder of the world 
and build the confidence that they can create the types of asset-based science learning experience for their students that were offered and denied to them when they were in elementary and middle school. That's, uh, it sounds like your favorite area has to be elementary from all the experience that you've had since then. Is that? It absolutely is. I really <laughs> love working with them at this level. So uh, many opportunities and, and you get so much back uh, for the efforts that you work and put in when you, when you work with the little kids. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I have kind of this a very similar background in teaching high school and then also teaching the, the we called them the littles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I don't know, there's just something joyous about going in and seeing those little ones in their eyes just glimmering with excitement to learn new things. So that's fantastic. Um, well, I, let's go back to uh, local phenomenon. Um I have noticed that there has been a lot of talk around the shift in instruction in science to be driven heavily by what is called an anchoring phenomena. Why is that? So all this talk about anchoring phenomenon has really been driven by the new emphasis. And we see this in in both our Texas uh, science standards and in the next generation science standards on getting students engaged in science and engineering practices. So uh, practices are are kind of those actions of science, the things scientists do, like asking questions, gathering and analyzing data, finding out patterns, developing explanations. But in order to do these actions, you have to have something meaningful to ask questions about, something meaningful to explain. And that's where the anchoring phenomenon comes in. The anchoring phenomenon provides that thing that all of these actions of doing science is centered around. Um, So an anchoring event um, is a phenomenon or event is basically a puzzling event or process whose full explanation requires drawing on a wide range of science ideas and experiences that are all pulled together uh, with evidence. And so um, if we were, I was going to say what's really driving this talk about anchoring phenomenon, it's underscored by this uh, uh, whole shift in about supporting students to be scientists and act like scientists as they explore the world. And so w- one of the common phrases I often use with my elementary students and teachers is that we haven't learned science if we can't do science. And it's that doing of science around a thing, something, some specific example from nature that is really driving all this talk about anchoring phenomenon. And, and, you know, there's something about doing something I I have found in my own experience. I mean, I've always been a very visual learner myself, Mm -hmm. but until I actually do what I saw, sometimes it doesn't go deep into my brain you know, for, for recall, I guess you could say. So Mm -hmm. I can, I can kind of understand a little bit, you know, why this shift has happened, you know, why, you know, for these complex ideas that we have to do it in order to understand it almost. But I guess that brings us to the term phenomena based instruction, right? Because of this use of phenomenon, Mm -hmm. how would you define that? Uh, as phenomenon-based instruction, what would that look like? What, how would you define that? Yeah. So um, often I find it's useful uh, to understand phenomenon-based instruction by first recognizing what it's not. Um, so if you had a science class like me when I was in elementary school, the traditional model of science led with the topic, 
like plant parts. And then we would read about plant parts in a textbook. Maybe we would do a standalone lab investigation on that topic and then go on to the next topic in our textbook. So instead of leading with a topic or a textbook, in phenomenon-based instruction, we are leading with a specific real-world instance of that topic. And then over the course of lesson, students are working to explain as they have all of these inquiry-based experiences and gather evidence and identify patterns in those experiences so that they can explain that topic, um, that, that specific real-world instance or phenomenon um, uh, that brings that topic alive. Um, so if you think about um, a lesson on plant parts in phenomenon-based instruction, often that noon lesson would be centered around an essential question such as, how does a cactus use its parts to survive in a desert? And so the lesson is all centered around helping students understand that specific phenomenon of the cactus and its parts enable to support its survival in the unique ecosystem that it is in a desert. Or if I was learning about objects in the night sky in a phenomenon-based instruction, I might ask a question such as, if the sun and Polaris are both stars, then why do they look different in the sky? And so the tricky part for teachers with all of this phenomenon-based instruction is they have to pick what is the specific example from nature that they're going to focus on for students to have to explain and explore throughout the lesson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it I... I have to say, I think it becomes more memorable if you use this type of instruction. This it definitely does. Um, yeah. And if you think about it, the, the, the images you sometimes see in the traditional text of a generic plant, there's not really a whole bunch of plants that look exactly like that one. Mm -hmm. And so if we're really concerned about getting students to be able to explain the world around them, then we need to use examples from the world around them. And it seems so common sense, um, but sometimes it can get tricky in the actual implementation because there's so many examples I could choose from. As a, a new teacher, sometimes they can get overwhelmed a little bit about, okay, so which example would be the best for my students here at this grade level? Um, and that's where often why high quality curriculum can come in and say, although you can use other local examples, here's a good one of, an, of a, a specific phenomenon that we recommend uh, kind of anchoring this lesson and this unit around. So, you know, it sounds when you when you listen to this idea of phenomena based instruction, and I'm just going back from my comparison of when I used to teach high school versus when I used to teach elementary. And, you know, the idea of bringing in that phenomena, doing a lot of more discussion and, you know, it seems a lot deeper and to build understanding and that can be kind of scary for an elementary teacher or an elementary experience, in my in my opinion. Um, with your experience in teaching elementary, uh, I'm sure you can agree that it you know it is sometimes difficult to fit this type of instruction, the science instruction, in you know daily. Um, that because we were having to focus so much on math or ELA, you know, in our daily instruction. But now having to wrap your head around this idea around um, driving that instruction with phenomena can be a little bit overwhelming, you know, to incorporate. So what suggestions would you have to support teachers, 
you know, in this effort of using phenomena, using phenomena-based instruction in their classroom at an elementary level? Yeah. Um, One of the things uh, I really encourage teachers to recognize is that many of their skills in supporting literacy instruction can actually overlap and be an asset for them in their science instruction as well. Uh, so I know many, many of the districts uh, across this country are, are really dealing uh, with this time crunch of how do we fit science into our days, especially since we've seen drops in elementary reading scores that are the largest in the last decade that we've ever seen uh, due to, to these ongoing impacts of the pandemic. But one of the greatest missed opportunities in both building teacher confidence and in supporting learning is how science can be a really great context in which to develop student fluency in literacy and mathematics. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Mm -hmm. if you think about uh, a phenomenon-based lesson, students are using and building all of their receptive and responsive literacy skills. So like we said, this isn't your old read a text and fill out a worksheet science. So as students are making their own written or oral observations of phenomenon, as they're sharing them out with their classmates, maybe in little mini presentations, as they're looking across all the drawings that students have done to find patterns, and then building models, justifying claims with evidence, all of those activities create openings to support literacy skills, whether it's in um, listening, speaking, reading, or writing. And not just build those skills, but they build those skills in ways that are motivating to students. And students who in our ELL, sorry, ELAR classes, who are often discouraged or disinterested in working through those decontextualized early readers, they're often the same ones who can't stop talking, drawing, writing, listening to stories, and reading when it's about the world that's around them, when it's about science phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, one of my recommendations is to think about science as a partner in literacy. And Mm -hmm. so um, as a teacher, use those things that you've probably spent a lot of time developing in how to lead, how to support a discussion. It's just instead of a discussion about how we're interpreting a text, we're having a discussion in what we noticed about phenomenon and drawing out all of those ideas. And then we might have be having a discussion where we find the pattern in all of our uh, observations. And then maybe instead of writing a persuasive um, uh, paragraph about what you think this uh, was the most important um, element from a, a story, you're writing a persuasive paragraph making a scientific claim that you think is backed up by the evidence that you just collected in your inquiry investigation. And so um, because all of these tools work hand in hand, it can be a way that teachers who are more familiar with sometimes uh, some of the literacy instruction components realize, okay, I can use my own strengths as a way into science. And it's also a way that teachers can use science to really motivate and encourage literacy skills in students Mm -hmm. who might not be interested in traditional literacy lessons. I, you know, I have to, I, I really love what you just said. It was science is a partner in literacy. And listening to you talk about this, it, it really gets me excited too, because when I think about my experience in school, when I, you know, my elementary, middle school grade years, 
I always looked forward to science. I was excited when the teacher would bring out the saltine crackers so we could analyze the diff, you know, what activated on our tongue in terms of flavor or response, you know, and it just, that's one of my favorite activities that Mrs. Henry did when Mm -hmm. I was in middle school. And I still remember it today. I remember standing around her desk, but what was really great about that is she brought us back to um, our, our pens and our paper, and we had to describe what we saw and what our thoughts were around that. So we were able to bring that creativity side and that analytical side, and it just made doing the literacy part, um, Mm -hmm. the ELAR, you know, the writing components, the researching, it gave us purpose and, and the, the drive to do it because we wanted to learn more just from based on that experience of that phenomena. So, um, yeah, I love what you just said. Science is a partner in in literacy. Can you give us an example of maybe a lesson that you taught um, using local phenomenon? You're from Texas, right? Well, I'm in Texas now, um, uh-huh. but I was uh, trained in New York for the first uh, uh, okay. part, then taught in Ohio and Wisconsin, and then worked in Arkansas and Tennessee, and now I'm here in Texas. But this whole idea of local phenomena works everywhere because it's all about using examples in the community as the anchoring events so that students can use all of their resources, all of their everyday knowledge, their everyday experiences in that community and use those to make sense of science. So um, imagine we're doing a lesson on aquatic fruit whoops and um, I as I also have training as an ecologist. So I love anything that connects to ecology. And mm-hmm. so whenever I'm doing a lesson on aquatic food webs, instead of using a representation that's a generic pond or generic river, I always bring it to a specific aquatic ecosystem that wherever I am, students are likely to be familiar with. They've walked by, maybe they've even swam in it or creeked in it. Oh, yeah, so here in this area of Texas, I also often use the ecosystem of the San Marcos River or the Land of Park Lake. And so we're investigating how all the parts of that place uh, work together. Back in Ohio, I often used one of the ponds in the city parks. When working in Arkansas, I used the small creek that ran past the local diner in the center of town. So as a teacher, I would then tweak the lesson to feature whatever species were found in that specific aquatic ecosystem. And it's successful because even if I can't take my uh, class out to that location, as in a field trip, we all all know those experiences are rather limited nowadays. Many Mm -hmm. of the students in the classroom, because it's in their community, are familiar with the place. So they are more likely to be familiar with the things that are found there. They're Mm -hmm. able to make more sophisticated conjectures about how the parts work together And because of that, we're able to get to a deeper level of critical thinking because instead of walking into something as a blank slate, they're walking into the lesson with all of those prior experiences that now I'm activating in the lesson components. Well, shout out to all my my peeps in Iowa. We could be using the Mississippi River Mm -hmm. as one of those, yeah, those aquatic ecosystems. I love that idea of, you know, you save a lot of time in in the instructional process too, if you're bringing it to something familiar, you know, local 
and moving it to a more global sense because you know they they have a platform to stand on like you were mentioning a foundation to jumpstart that learning um and kudos to you for having all those different areas that you can draw from <laughs> Yeah, it's it's been a, it's a, been a, been a fun journey um in terms of my my teaching career uh, over these over these years. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Forsyth, uh, we're out of time for today, but thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you being here with us. Um perhaps maybe in the near future we can uh talk with you again. Is that okay? I would love to. So thank you for inviting me today. It's really been a pleasure talking about all of these really important topics uh, and issues facing facing our teachers and schools today when it comes to high quality science instruction at the elementary level. I love that because I definitely want to get more into the literacy, like maybe some stories or something that we can recommend to teachers, um, you know, because uh, I, I know you've you've kind of talked a little bit about that in the past in some of your your um, sessions, your workshops and things. Yes. And for podcast listeners who are going to the Texas CAS conference this year, I'll be talking about the three most important types of science discussions that you can have with your elementary students in any any elementary science lesson. I would love the love to sit on in on that. I think I'm I'll try to make it to that session. I want to learn more about that. Well, thank you again, Dr. Forsyth. And um, I guess back to you, Walter. Many thanks to both Leon Eikhoff Gentry and Dr. Shelley Forsyth for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Fresh Ideas for Teaching podcast. Until next time. This Keeping Science Real podcast series is presented by Savas Learning Company, a next-generation learning company providing award-winning solutions for grades pre-K through 12. Visit savas.com today to request pre-K through 12 curriculum samples for your school or district. And you can keep the conversation going by following us on social media at Savas Learning with hashtag moving learning forward.